Welcome back to Agrac. I'm Jed Wolfhoff, and we've got another exciting keyword episode for you today with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac. We're going to talk about celiac plexus blocks and dexmedetomidine, also commonly known as Presidex, uh, and hope that it will be very useful. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. All right. So before, sorry, before we start, uh, a couple quick announcements. So uh, remember, we are now on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. Check it out. Some interesting discussions happening there, and we'll hope to get more going as more people join. We're also on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Akrak Podcast. You can follow me at, at @jwolpaw, And we've even got some Twitter polls out there. We're doing a Monday question of the week uh, as kind of a board review style question. So all kinds of fun stuff happening in the social media sphere. Check it out on Twitter and Facebook for the Agrag Podcast. All right, let's jump in with, uh, Jillian, I think we're going to start with celiac plexus block. Yes, that's correct. And are you on Instagram yet? Uh, not yet, <laughs> though. There has been some debate. Uh, our fantastic intern, uh, Kimia Kashkuli, is uh, doing some really great work in all of this stuff and has uh, we have had some preliminary discussions. We'll see where we go with the, <laughs> the, the Instagram. With the Instagram. <laughs> okay, so our first ABA keyword is celiac plexus block. And if you look at the ABA website and you pull up their keywords, this is actually classified under anatomy, autonomic, celiac plexus. Another great website slash resource that I really like to use is Open Anesthesia. And they also give you keywords and the open anesthesia website divides the keywords into four categories for the celiac plexus block. It's distribution, which in my mind is really like the anatomy of it, indications, uh, sorry, complications and side effects. And then the other thing that I actually really like about open anesthesia is they tell you how many times it's been tested and in what years. So for distribution, that was tested in 2011. Complications, this is the big one. This was tested in 2008, 2009, 2012, 2016, and 2017. Side effects were tested in 2008, 2009, and 2012. So you can really see like complications and side effects are the big questions that they're asking about the celiac plexus block. And then indications, which is reasons why you would do it. The last time they tested that was actually in 2008. Uh, The other really interesting thing is they give you how many, what percent of test takers got the question correct. And what I find if more than 85% of people are answering it correct, those questions tend to drop off because they feel like people know the answer and we're not going to test it anymore. So I think that's why they don't test distribution anymore because 95% of people were getting that correct. And it's not a great test question if you're not getting some type of distribution curve for your question. They want you to discriminate somehow between people who do and do not Right, exactly. And then another place I go is Anesthesia Hub. It has old ITE questions. It has eight years worth of released ITE questions. And when you type in, you can actually query questions, which I really like, and type in celiac plexus block. It came up with eight old release questions, and it's exactly what open anesthesia says. Three were about complications, two were on side effects, two were indications, and one was distribution. So really what you're going to see mostly for the test is complications and side effects. And I think I remember that from my exam. Do you remember? Yeah, definitely. The most, the where I've seen is the most both on, I think my actual boards and then certainly on MOCA questions is, as you've said, I think the complications side effects are more tested than anything else. And do you have like word associations in your head when certain things come up? Like I'll give you an example. We do a question of the day with our residency. And today the question was about uh, Reglan. And so I think Reglan and dopamine and 
tardive dyskinesia. Like I kind of have these associations. So sure. my the one that I have with celiac plexus block is diarrhea and hypotension. <laughs> so if you want to put two like two or three words together, that was probably how I would sum that up. And so maybe when you're taking a test and you're a little bit stressed out, you have these word associations, and you might not know why you're picking it, but at least it's there in your subconscious somewhere. Totally. Do you ever do that? I don't. I do. Yeah, I think the more you, uh, I think the more you know. There's probably multiple levels, right? When you certainly you've studied a lot. I remember this back from kind of studying for step one, and then for you know anesthesia boards and critical care boards. You've done a ton of studying. You may not have it all completely down, but like you said, you kind of have these feelings, right? right. A word comes up or a phrase, and right. you think, oh, that feels like hypotension, or it feels like infection. Um, but you know you don't necessarily aren't able to explain why, and then you take it to the next level right. where you can then kind of explain better, right. yeah. and so that's if, what you need, of course, for oral boards is yes. to, be able to explain. Right. Yeah. But if you're going to make some association in your head, celiac plexus block, hypotension, diarrhea, those are kind of the words you want to put together Sounds in right your to brain. Me. So just to review the anatomy, you have a thoracic sympathetic ganglia that sends branches uh, that merge as the greater and lesser splanchnic nerves, and they pass below the diaphragm. So that's kind of key. We're now in the abdominal cavity. And the nerves coalesce in a periaortic supplementary sympathetic ganglion known as the celiac plexus. I think why they don't test anatomy as much is it's not black and white. It's not always in the same place. So generally, it's around the first lumbar vertebrae, so L1. So they could ask you around usually typically what vertebrae is it at, but it could be anywhere from the T12 to L2 region. Um, it's in the retroperitoneal space, and it's anterolateral to the aorta, usually, again, at the level of the origin of the celiac artery. And the fibers from this ganglion, they send post-ganglionic innervation to all the intra-abdominal organs and carry pain sensation for many of the intraperitoneal organs, such as pancreas, liver, gallbladder. So it's pretty much everything in the belly except the left colon. So when you do a celiac plexus block, you can block pain from most of your intra-abdominal organs. Uh, so just to review the distribution, uh, from you're going from the distal stomach to the mid-transverse colon, so you're including the pancreas, the gallbladder, most of, actually all the small intestine, most of the large intestine. You're usually located at the level of L1. Uh, the sympathetic preganglionic fibers are from T5 to T12. So this is the type of question that you might see about anatomy. Is a celiac plexus block would not effectively treat pain resulting from a malignancy involving which of the following organs? Uterus, stomach, pancreas, gallbladder. So it sounds to me like the uterus, if I'm remembering my anatomy correctly, is not located in the peritoneum but in the pelvis. So I think that's going to be further down the chain. Right. So the celiac plexus innervates most of the abdominal viscera, like we talked about, lower esophagus, stomach, small intestine, pancreas, liver, biliary tract, spleen, kidneys, adrenal glands, and omentum. But the pelvic organs are supplied by the hypogastric plexus. And just for like test-taking strategy, when you're thinking about this and you're looking at these answers, gallbladder, pancreas, stomach, uterus, you might think, okay, three of those are intra-abdominal and the uterus isn't, so you might get it that way. I always remember that Sesame Street song, that one of these things is not like the other. So that's kind of the one that maybe is not like the other three, if you really were just kind of guessing. Right. And if you, you know, talk about test-taking strategies, right? If you have no idea and you, what the right answer is, and you look and you see, you know, maybe two of them are synonyms for each other. Well, you can eliminate those, right? Because they can't possibly be one if two things mean the same thing. Or like you said, maybe one of them is clearly different than the other three. And that, right. you know, if you have no other way to choose, that's a good right. way to choose. That's a great tip. So another similar question is a celiac plexus block provides effective relief of pain associated with primary cancers at each of the following locations, except the adrenal gland, liver, 
pancreas, sigmoid colon, stomach. And so you said before that the left colon, which is going to be the descending colon down into the sigmoid colon, is not going to be covered. So that would be my right. guess. And I think <laughs> maybe I'm wrong on this, but the sigmoid colon is mostly in the pelvis too. So I'm going to say that it's also hypogastric plexus. Yeah, I think it's beyond, like you said, beyond, beyond the descending the, colon right. is going to be, yeah. yeah. So, so when you do a block, you're injecting local anesthetic and sometimes alcohol or phenol into the retroperitoneal space, and it allows that anesthetic solution to diffuse around the ganglia and the splanchnic nerves to provide blockade of these fibers. I did one as a resident. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I've never and done I'm one. pretty sure we use CT. I was talking to some residents earlier, and I think they do flora, but you use v- some type of visualization. Yeah. You're, you're going to use some imaging. You're not going to do it just based on landmarks. And it's commonly used as a neurolytic sympathetic blockade for the relief of pain from malignancy of the pancreas, liver, or other abdominal organs. And in my experience, it's almost always pancreas. Yeah. Yeah. So question that you're going to see about that is intractable pain due to unresectable pancreatic carcinoma is most effectively treated with bilateral neurolytic intercostal blocks at T10 to T12, bilateral sympathetic blocks with phenol, celiac plexus block with alcohol, epidural block with phenol, subarachnoid block with alcohol. Right. So we just talked about how this is a good treatment for pancreatic cancer. Right. So see the celiac plexus block. And I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole looking up alcohol versus phenol. I don't know. I have a great response. If they gave you both, I don't think I could tell you which one is better. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting because that <laughs> does come up where they'll put different things in right. there. And I think for the most part, they're testing more the anatomy than they are the agent. I think that that's getting pretty specific if they want you to know is phenol better than alcohol. I think right. that's maybe a little bit of a distractor. And this was more of like an anatomy question. Right. At least that's how I categorized it. Uh, so interestingly enough, uh, Barish actually did say that you can use these blocks to relieve the sympathetic response and associated stress response to abdominal surgery, but I don't think I've come across that in my practice in any way, but no. it's out there. Like maybe you could use that as a supplemental block instead of an epidural, for instance. Uh, so the most reliable signs of a successful block are... <laughs> so is this your word association? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hypotension, diarrhea. Right. Uh, so one is disappearance of pain and the other one is presence of hypotension. So if you have a successful block, you're almost guaranteed to see that hypotension. And these are really the most common questions that you're going to see. So here's an example question. The most common complication of a celiac plexus block is hypotension, seizure, retroperitoneal, hematoma, and the last one was constipation. Right. So we'd go with hypotension. Yeah. And I think the constipation is in there because people think, oh, yeah, there's something to do with that. You know, right. and they don't remember which way. Right. So they pick that one. It's a good distractor answer. And then the other one, uh, very, very similar. The most likely effect of a celiac plexus block for, medom- for an abdominal operation, again, not for pain, but for an abdominal operation, is bowel distension, hypotension, incisional analgesia, muscle relaxation, urinary retention. And I think what they're trying to get with a couple of distractors there, right? Incisional analgesia sounds good, except it's not going to cover the skin. It's covering the in the viscera. Yeah, great. And right. so that's that is not correct. And then we already said hypotension, right. so we know that's probably the correct one. And then bowel distension is going to be much like constipation, the opposite of what you would say. Right. Okay. So another similar question. It's asking about the mechanism behind the hypotension. So a 54-year-old man receives 25 milliliters of a 50% alcohol and quarter percent bupivacaine solution for a celiac plexus block. During the next 20 minutes, blood pressure decreases from 130 over 75 to 85 over 50. Which of the following is the most likely cause? So intravascular injection, retroperitoneal hemorrhage, splanchnic vasodilation, subarachnoid blockade, tension pneumothorax. 
So we already talked about how hypotension is very common and probably, again, you're blocking sympathetic, so you're causing vasodilation. So splanking vasodilation is probably the most likely. Right. And all of these actually can happen, but you are almost, if you have a successful block, you should see hypotension and that's from the splanchnic vasodilation. And again, it says the most likely cause, and that is the most likely cause. So the most serious complication that you can have from one of these blocks is development of paralysis from an unrecognized subarachnoid injection of a neurolytic drug. So no good. Nobody that would know. be bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't want that. And then there are other complica- complications that can occur that are less common, including local anesthetic toxicity, spinal or epidural injection, aortic or vena cava puncture and bleeding, retroperitoneal hemorrhage, visceral organ injury, and pneumothorax. And again, that's why we use imaging for these blocks. Right. And I ha- actually have seen the paralysis come up on questions um, where they'll ask something around what's the most serious potential complication. And the answer is that. I thought you were going to see. I've seen this in the ICU. That's why I made a face. (laughs) But yeah, I have seen test questions about that. Again, it's a less likely complication, but the most like life-threatening severe complication. So so this is a type of question you might see is each of the following is a complication of celiac plexus block with 0.5% lidocaine, 40 milliliters, except so hematuria, ileus, postural hypotension, retroperitoneal hematoma, weakness of hip flexors. So I'm going to say I got this wrong when I was going through questions, and I don't always get them right, and I learned from this one. And then I was kind of mad at myself for getting it wrong. But. Yeah, interesting. So we I, we kind of talked about the fact that um, it is likely to cause diarrhea, so ileus seems kind of like the opposite of that. But tell me what you thought initially. Well, that's what uh, – actually, I think I picked hematuria because okay. it didn't really make sense to me, hematuria. Uh, but the answer is um, – so it's except – so it, it – can cause hematuria, postural hypotension, retroperitoneal hematoma, and weakness of hip flexors. It does not cause an ileus. And I guess that makes sense because you block the sympathetic nervous system and now you have parasympathetic and now you're resting and digesting and that bowel function should be okay. Right. So you're going to have- Even a little too much. Exactly. You're going to have the diarrhea. (laughs) Now, uh, hematuria, so that is a possibility. Is that because if you hit the ureter or if you hit the bladder, maybe? Maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. It just has- I've seen a couple questions with that as one of the things that can cause but I don't have a great answer as okay. to why. Yeah. Uh, so another one, each of the following is a complication or, or side effect of neurolytic celiac plexus blockade, except I thought I was reading the same question, but it's a different one. So uh, all of these can be complications except. So constipation, hematuria, orthostatic hypotension, paraplegia, pneumothorax. Yeah, and so, of course, the constipation. constipation yeah. yeah. So in summary, celiac plexus block, it's usually used to treat abdominal pain, usually cancer pain, most commonly the pancreas, although you can use it for really any abdominal organ up into the left side of the colon, not good for anything in the pelvis. Uh, The most common test questions you're going to see are about side effects and complications and a little bit about the anatomy. Great. All right. So let's move on to dexmedetomidine, one of my favorite and most commonly used <laughs> medications these days in the ICU. I will say a uh, couple quick things. One is I see this mispronounced all the time. It's dexmedetomidine, not dexmetomidine. So people leave out that middle syllable. <laughs> it's a pet um, peeve of yours. <laughs> yeah, so, and I would also say I, I, I tell people to be careful referring to it as dex because, dexamethasone. yes, there's dexamethasone, there's uh, dexmedetomidine, and it's a little confusing. So I would either, at least in the United States, use the word Presidex. I think everyone knows what that refers to, at least in the U.S., um, but you certainly wouldn't be wrong saying dexmedetomidine as well. All right. So the ABA 
keyword is dexmedetomidine. And the areas that the ABA has identified for you to know about dexmedetomidine Presidex is mechanism of action, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, metabolism and excretion, effects on circulation, respiration, other organs, side effects and toxicity, indications and contraindications. And in putting together these keyword podcast and in trying to help my residents prepare for their written board exams. Um, I have noticed when it comes to drugs, it's kind of what they want you to know about all drugs. They want you to know when you use it, when you absolutely don't use it. So indications, contraindications, what the more common side effects are and what are really potential long-term or worse complications from a drug. So across the board, it's kind of what they want you to know about all drugs. And I'll just say, we're not there. Obviously, we could do an entire hour-long podcast just on dexmedetomidine. We're not going to get into some of the newer literature. For example, the study that just came out looking at propofol versus dexmedetomidine sedation. We're not going to talk about all that today. This is really going to be focused on what might you be asked on the board. Right. This is for a written board review. What type of questions are going to come up? So if you go to open anesthesia, really what they're testing are the effects on the CNS and the cardiovascular system and hemodynamic effects. So it was tested in 2016, CNS effects, and then it was tested actually on this last ITE, the 2019 ITE, and only 70% of people are actually getting this test question correct. Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up in the basic and then again in next year's ITE. I didn't know this when I was reading about it last night, that this drug was actually only ever FDA approved for ICU sedation. We use it for a lot of off-label items such as I use it in the wake fiber optic intubations. I think it's a great adjuvant for sedation. I think some of our anesthesiologists use it just as an adjuvant in their TIVA regimen. Yep. Um, but it actually it hasn't been used as an FDA-approved drug for very long in the States. And I wonder if cost is part of that, but that's outside the scope of this. But um, that's what they're testing is the hemodynamic effects and the cardiovascular effects of this drug. So for the mechanism of action, dexmedetomidine, it's a more selective alpha-2 agonist than clonidine, which results in an inhibition of release of norepinephrine and thus analgesia. Uh, compared to clonidine, it is seven times more selective for alpha-2 receptors, and it has a shorter half-life. The half-life is 1.5 hours. Time-to-peak effect is, do you know this? Put no, you on the spot. I do not, I <laughs> it's do actually not. 15 minutes for time-to-peak effect. It provides excellent sedation, uh, so valuable properties, potent analgesia, sedation, and anxiolysis. It can be used as an anti-salagogue. It can promote hemodynamic, hemodynamic stability. In animals, it can attenuate opioid rigidity. And I think in the PACU, we start, is it indicated for shivering or some people have used it for shivering in the PACU? I am not aware of that, but it may, it may be. I feel like I've used that before. I will check on that and get back, make for sure, let you know for sure. Um, So when you give this, you usually give it a loading dose of one microgram per kilogram over 10 minutes. And the most common hemodynamic response that you see is, I'm sure, in using it. We see bradycardia. Bradycardia, yeah. And one of the nice things about using this for sedative effects, it actually can help mimic normal sleep patterns, which is really important, especially in the ICU. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's a more popular drug. And so you do see questions like that. So one of the questions that I found is sedation with which which of the following drugs is most likely to resemble normal sleep? Propofol, midazolam, dexmedetomidine, ketamine. Right. So it's going to be dexmedetomidine. In fact, there's nothing else that's been shown to do it. We use, as people will know, a lot of things in the ICU for people who are not sleeping or who are agitated at night, especially things like catiapine uh, and other atypical antipsychotics, but none of those have been shown 
uh, at least not in large trials, to be helpful in dealing with delirium or in improving good quality sleep. And we know for sure that things like opiates and uh, benzodiazepines uh, do not. While they may make someone appear to be sleeping, they do not promote important restful stage four and REM sleep. Right. And dexmedetomidine does that. And I think that's why it's so more popular in ICU than other environments in the hospital. And at Columbia, it's, it was our go-to in the ICU. We use that for most of our patients. So here's another question. The least likely side effect of dexmedetomidine in a healthy patient is respiratory arrest, bradycardia, sinus arrest, hypotension. Yeah, so clearly both uh, bradycardia, extreme bradycardia, also known as sinus arrest, or uh, um, the last one there was hypotension. Right. All of those are actually, with the exception of sinus arrest, but certainly the bradycardia hypotension are fairly common. Sinus arrest follows if it were to get extreme. We use desmetatomidine because it does not cause respiratory arrest. It's one of the things that distinguishes it from propofol and one of the reasons we like it uh, for patients who are not intubated. Right, which I think is a great test question. So least likely side effect is respiratory arrest. And I actually did not know about the sinus arrest, but I kind of intuited it. I thought, well, if you're getting bradycardia, that can cause hypotension. Profound bradycardia is pretty much sinus arrest, so it must be respiratory arrest. Absolutely. And this was the question about shivering, and this is why I was thinking about that. So post-anesthetic shivering can be treated with all of the following except. So it's naloxone, physostigmine, magnesium sulfate, dexmedetomidine. Yeah, so uh, I've never heard of naloxone being used for it. I think uh, that that would be my guess, though. I have to say this is not a question I feel super comfortable with. Yeah, so clonidine, dexmedetomidine, propofol, tramadol, physostigmine, magnesium sulfate, and narcotics, especially meperidine, have been used to all different degrees of success for uh, post-operative shivering, but not naloxone. Naloxone may increase pain, especially if someone's had opioids, and does not help decrease shivering. Right. And so, again, the way that I would have guessed that and, and the way you might get there, even if you didn't know the answer, is, well, you know that meperidine, which is, has some opiate effects and maybe other opiates, can be used for shivering, so reversing opiate effect would be the opposite. Right, right. And I might actually try it if I have someone really shivering in OB, in the PACU. Try Presidex. Yeah, see if it helps. Would you bolus it or start a drip? I'm not sure. I'd have to read a little bit more on it. But just having done this this podcast review, I might try it. Yeah, interesting. I will just say, and I don't, we, we may talk Off-label about Off-label use, off-label use. Yeah, well, <laughs> for sure. And, and make sure you check about your own hospital's policies. But um, you want to be very careful bolusing dexmedetomidine. Uh, starting a drip without a bolus is, I think, in most cases, very safe. Bolusing, you want to be cautious. It can That's where you really can see um, hemodynamic effects. Uh, there are some descriptions of initial actual tachycardia followed by then bradycardia, um, but I personally have only seen the bradycardia. Uh, usually, I think if you give a half mic per kilo or even a quarter mic per kilo, bolus slowly over about 10, 10 minutes, minutes, that's pretty right. safe. When you get into more than that, three quarters or even a mic per kilo, you have to be very yeah. cognizant of the potential for significant side effects. So then it's effect on MAC. Dexmedetomidine has the following effect on MAC. So A, no change in MAC. B, increases MAC. C, decreases MAC. D, acute administration increases MAC. And then chronic administration decreases MAC. Yeah, so we know that it decreases MAC. That's one of the reasons that uh, you mentioned earlier. Some people will use it along with their propofol, maybe even with ketamine, et cetera, as part of their TIVA. It does decrease MAC. So it decreases MAC from 30 from 35 to 50%. So it actually does decrease max significantly, but then you're more likely to get hypotension. So. Yeah. 
pick your pick your battles. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> yeah. And then, which of the following technique is least effective in the treatment of pruritus from the administration of neuraxial opiates? So, nelbufine, dexmedetomidine, diphenhydramine, propofol. Well, that's tough. I mean, clearly, diphenhydramine we use a lot for itching. Um, and then nalbufine has some uh, anti-opiate or opiate-blocking effects, so that makes sense. But um, between dexmedetomidine and propofol, I don't usually think of either of those as having anti-puritis effects. So I'm going to say I'd choose between those, but I don't know the right answer. Yeah. So it is dexmedetomidine. It's not good for puritis, but it might be good for shivering. Yeah. And yeah. do you think of propofol as being good for puritis? That's, that's what's No. Honestly, nothing is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I've given – I itched terribly from – epidural fentanyl when I had an epidural for labor and they gave me Benadryl and it didn't help at all. I yep. was just tired and itchy. <laughs> right. So right. I do think like the nalbufine is really probably the best treatment there, yeah. uh, but not dexmedetomidine. So if you want to associate words, like we did it for celiac plexus block, I think for dexmedetomidine, I would associate bradycardia and hypotension. Um, those are really the more common test questions that you're going to see. So just to review it, dexmedetomidine, it's a highly selective alpha-2 agonist, has a faster onset and shorter duration of action compared with clonidine. It has very good analgesic properties. It can potentiate neuraxial analgesia, uh, and it can decrease the incidence. Oh, oh, so this actually goes to the pruritus, sorry. It can actually decrease the incidence of pruritus by reducing the amount of narcotic dose used, mm. but it does not treat pruritus. Gotcha, sorry, gotcha. I was thinking that was, I was reading the wrong thing. I thought it was my summary. Um, so, yeah, so just to review, dexmedetomidine, the most common exam questions you're going to get are about its effects on the CNS and CV systems. Yeah, I think that's right. And where, where you know, people get tripped up a little that I've seen is they think, oh, I know we choose dexmedetomidine over propofol often for sedation. And then they think, or why is that? They know the thing about the respiratory depression, that it doesn't cause that. But then they sometimes think, oh, yeah, it doesn't cause hypotension, and propofol does. And that's wrong. It's just as likely to cause hypotension as propofol. In my experience, and I don't know that this is supported in any studies, but in my experience, dexmedetomidine, some patients uh, handle it much better uh, than they do propofol and vice versa. So there's some patients I've had in the ICU where you try propofol, they get very hypotensive. You try dexmedetomidine, they don't get as hypotensive. And the same can be true in reverse. So I think they're both potentially cause both uh, cause hypotension. You get more bradycardia with the dexmedetomidine. And I also think you're going to see this being tested more and more frequently because these questions just start started popping up 2016, 2019. And I think it's going to be like a standard test question coming up as we use it more and more. Yeah. And I think I, I totally agree with you, Jillian. I think some things we may see are it's been shown now in, in multiple studies to have some effect in preventing delirium in the ICU. So you may see that asked in that way. For, they may give you the example of a high-risk patient for delirium, maybe an older patient having a major surgery going to the ICU, asking what's the most likely agent to help prevent delirium in them. That would definitely be the only one that we know of is Presidex or dexmedetomidine. And then we may see it for alcohol withdrawal. There's some suggestion that it may help with alcohol withdrawal, either prevention or maybe even treatment, though I, I would not replace your standard treatment of probably benzodiazepines with um, Presidex. Just know that if you have to also sedate someone in addition to your alcohol withdrawal protocol, Presidex is probably a good option. And you may see that popping up on exam questions. And I think the sleep question too, about yeah. its ability to have more normal sleep than other sedatives. Absolutely. All right, Jillian, another great keyword uh, episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, and of course, I forgot to ask Jillian to do a random recommendation. 
unfortunately. So I will just have to do my own. I am reading this great novel that I heard recommended. It's called The Overstory. It's by an author named Richard Powers. Uh, he's evidently published, this is his 12th novel, so it's, he's not new to it. But this uh, is the first I've read. I'm in the middle of it now. It won the um, Pulitzer Prize, actually, just a few months ago in April of 2019, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It's really interesting. It's about nine different people. They're kind of uh, different lives. And the first part is all kind of just about them, and there's no clear way in which they all tie together. And then they all start to come together through actually their connection to trees, which uh, I don't know and not far enough yet to be able to explain more but it's really beautifully written obviously it was well appreciated to win the pulitzer prize and so that is my recommendation the overstory by richard powers all right another great keyword episode let us know what you thought you can go to akrak.com where you can leave a comment that others can see you can also go to the facebook page and let us know what you thought there you can tweet at us at akrak podcast and i'm at j wolpaw that's j-w-o-l-p-a-w so lots of ways to take part in the conversation and let us know what you think. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. You can, of course, also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and leave a donation there. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Thank you, as always, to the one and only Brian Park, who continues even during his training to make some outlines for some of the episodes. A huge thank you to the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo for composing the original ACRAC music. And, of course... The amazing Kimia Kashkuli, who is our first stupendous ACRAC intern. She's doing great work in the social media sphere and also helping prepare for some upcoming exciting episodes. So thank you, Kimia. All right. That is it for today. For Dr. Jillian Isaac and the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.